I might pray and uh, we'll make a start today. Jesus, you are really gracious and Holy Spirit, you're really alive and uh, you really want to work in us. You really want to work in me. There's no professionals in Christianity. There's no one who's got it all together. We all need you and we all need your, your activity and your change. And the truth is that the people who say that churches are full of hypocrites probably in one sense are right because uh, we're all here and we all want to follow you. Maybe we want you to change us and change our hearts, but at the same time, we do some crazy stuff, really dumb stuff and bad stuff. And uh, you're just an amazing God who loves to have hypocrites in, in that definition on your team. And so we just really uh, thank you for that. Please help me today to speak well, and please help everyone listening to have uh, good hearts. Receptive hearts. Amen. God made human beings at the very start. He made them a little bit like him. God also made human beings to worship unceasingly. They were created to love God, pursue God, sacrifice for God, delight in God, hope in God, serve God, trust in God and obey God. That's what worshipping is. But human beings decided two things that he wasn't worth worshipping anymore and that they were not content with being a little bit like him. They actually wanted to be him. And in that we see the first act of false worship and that was humans worshipping themselves. We've been doing it ever since. It was treason. It was stupid. It was disgusting. It shattered and splintered reality in a way that none of us has ever completely appreciated. Now we're in a foreign place. Human beings were never meant to be autonomous. We were made to be dependent upon him. We were never made to have to deal with guilt and shame. We were actually made to be pure. We were never made to love, pursue, sacrifice, delight, hope, serve, trust or obey anything but God. When we disobey God, we reveal what our heart worships. When we disobey God, we sin. No one knows... Sorry, no one understands the tragedy of sin. No one understands the ultimate offence of sin. No one understands the fullness of the seriousness of sin. No one understands the power of sin. And no one understands the control of sin. No one understands the deceitfulness of sin. And no one understands the filthiness of sin. And the ultimate bad news, no one can stop sinning. You can't do it. On your own, you cannot do it. doesn't matter what you do, you can't, you can't stop it. We're all worse than we've ever dared to think. <coughs> Let me give you some good news. Today's meant to be the happy time. You're going, I thought he said it was going to be a happy one. All right? Well, the, good, the bad news makes the happy stuff better. So let's hook in. We're doing Hebrews 1 verse 3 today. When I was teaching in Sydney, I, uh, I had to teach, this is one of my uh, infamous pieces of my history, I had to teach Year 7 maths, right? Straight out of uni, never taught how to teach maths, but they said, you can do the Year 7 maths class. Unbeknownst to me, one of the students in my Year 7 maths class was the daughter of the guy who wrote the textbook that we were using in the class, right? <laughs> never trained in maths, teaching the math guru's daughter. Anyway, so I'm in there and... Uh, I'm walking around one day, and those students do, they write little notes to each other, all right? But 
it was the funniest thing, and I'm sure I've got it somewhere, but I haven't ever been able to track it down. It would just take me hours to go through all my stuff. But I, I confiscated this note that these kids were passing to each other, and it was uh, literally these guys were in a band together at grade seven, and they were coming up with this list of band names that they were going to have that they were thinking of for their band, right? Classic stuff. Let me give you two. One of them was diphtheria. <laughs> I'm not even making it up. And this one, this is the one I really like, pungent stench. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a good band name? Pungent stench. Well, that's kind of what we did last week, right? We looked at sin and we looked at the fact that sin is festy, it's really, really ugly, and the Bible actually pushes the boundaries of decency to help us to understand how bad it really is. Our sin is a pungent stench to God. But what we actually find in the book of Hebrews is uh, the writer of Hebrews not only is obsessed with this idea that Jesus, that sin is your biggest problem and that Jesus has dealt completely with it, and he's going to actually unpack that the whole way through his book. He's actually going to unpack the fact that sin's your biggest problem, Jesus has dealt decisively with it. Let me give you a whole bunch of other ways other than the one we're looking at today where Jesus deals decisively with sin in Hebrews. Jesus made a propitiation for sins. Propitiation just means he removed the wrath. Jesus, that's in chapter 2, verse 17. He put sins away so that God remembers them no more. That's in 8, verse 12 and 10, verse 17. He bore sin in 9, 28. He offered a sacrifice for sins in 10, 12. He made an offering for sin, chapter 10, 18. He brought about remission of sin in 10, 18. He annulled sin by his sacrifice, chapter 9, verse 26. He brought about redemption from transgressions in 9.15. He did a lot of things that the Old Covenant could not do with respect to sin. And that's in chapter 10, verse 2, 4, 6 and 11. He talks a lot about sin in the book of Hebrews, but he talks a lot about the solution to, this, to sin. He's absolutely passionate about all of us getting this idea that Jesus has dealt comprehensively with sin. And the first time that he talks about that is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, where he says this. He says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's all we're going to look at today. We looked at sins last week and we looked at the fact that if purification is needed, then something must be filthy, something must be dirty. So we looked at the nature of sin last week. So this week we're looking at the good bit, which is the purification side of it. Here we go. I'm, this is my shot. I may not ever preach many of these in my whole life, but this is my shot at doing a three-point sermon. All right? I think I've only ever preached one before. So I got taught that when I did some Bible college on preaching, three-point sermons, you've got to finish in 20 minutes. So glad I'm not doing that subject now. I'd fail, I think. But anyway, here's the first one. What we actually find in this phrase is that the purification that Jesus has brought is completed. It's completed purification. Check this phrase out. After making purification for sins, he sat down. What tense is after making? past tense this is done like one of the things i hope that you get out of this message today is you just actually get a little bit of excitement all right because i actually think any biblical truth that just goes into your head and is just an intellectual thing you don't get it god never meant for his truth to be just intellectual he meant for you to have a heart response to it which sometimes might mean that you relax sometimes it might mean that you just breathe a good sigh of just being relaxed just some good release there after making, he's done it. See, the purification's done. It's not like, and this is the weird thing, because humans actually, sometimes we just kind of sit, Christians sit in this, uh, in this vibe, and 
in, in this seat where they're just kind of going, yeah, I know he died for some, but I'm scared that this stuff's not sorted out. The rod of Hebrews is saying, no, that's not true. Everything's done. Absolutely everything is sorted out. He's not saying Jesus is going to make purification. He's, uh, he's not saying he currently is making. He's saying it's done. It's finished. It's sorted out. The job's done. See, and what does he do after he's done the job? Well, after he's done the job, he sits down. Anyone ever been working with someone else who sat down before the job was done? That's really frustrating, isn't it? All right, and probably some of the wives are going, yeah, absolutely, that happens all the time. I'm up, mopping the floor, right? I'm cleaning stuff up, I'm doing the, you know, washing up, I'm doing the washing, and he's sitting down, all right? And what's happening on the inside is, we're not finished, all right? There's a lot of stuff left to do. This has been me, all right? Because seriously, I don't know about you, for those who are parents, but don't you just long for the time where you just down tools at the end of the night? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You're just going, yeah, just down tools, just, all right, just... Sit down, just put your hiding somewhere, maybe in front of the TV, right? Just relax for a bit. And for us, uh, you may think it's cruel, but we try to get our boys off to bed around about seven, right? At night time. And if they're cranky, it, we just bring it back further and further. We haven't got to three o'clock yet, but we're working on that one. <laughs> so what you do is you try to get into bed. Now, I'm just being honest with you. What happened here is obviously you got, for us, Ange wants to make lunches for the next day, all right? And so I just think, no, nah, seriously, I just need a time out. I seem to sit down, just have a relax. So I'm sitting down, she's making lunches. Does that sound fair to you? And you're going, why am I even listening to this guy, right? He doesn't even love his wife properly. But here's the truth, I don't do that anymore, right? Because the job isn't done. Well, when Jesus sits down, he sits down because the, job, the, the job's done. The purific purification job is done. Like... If you actually did a study through the Gospels to work out all of the things that it says Jesus Christ came to do, you'll actually find that this is the only job that he came to do where he sits down after it. Yeah, he came to seek and save the lost. Yeah, he came to be a good shepherd. But it actually doesn't say that he sat down after any of those. If you're looking at the pinnacle of what Christ came to do, it was to purify you on the cross. So when he's purified you, he sits down. We actually see some of this in Hebrews 10, verse 1, 3 and 4. Check this out. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Check this line out. Like don't, it's almost like don't tell an Old Testament Jew this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Check that out. I mean, I remember reading somewhere that over the Passover period, it wasn't uncommon for about 250,000 animals to be slaughtered in the temple. That's a lot of animals. And it's one thing I've honestly thought about doing, and I'm probably not going to do it, right? But it'd be an interesting thing for you to sit here and to watch someone cut the throat of an animal and watch it die. Because that's what had to happen in the Old Testament when people sinned. You actually see this in... Leviticus chapter 4 verse 1 to 3 it says and the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the people of Israel saying if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments 
about things not to be done and does any one of them. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. So, do you get this? Like You don't do something that God asks you to do and you've got to go and get your best bull or your best lamb or your best goat and you've got to kill it. And the weird thing is that the writer of Hebrews is going, you know, that never ever got the job done. The killing of that animal and the blood, I mean, can you imagine the amount of animal blood that's in the temple when you've got 250,000 animals that are getting slaughtered? That is a brutal reminder of the seriousness of your sin and my sin. But the weird thing about it is it doesn't work. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, it doesn't work. You know, and I was thinking last night, I'm just going, yeah, I can imagine it, you know, like, as these kids and they're going, man, we're going to have a sweet lamb race next Sunday, right? But then dad goes and covets someone else's donkey and there goes the lamb roast. <laughs> All right? We're going to have to put that sucker to, to death. And the kids are going, oh, but dad, we're going to have a nice feed. He's going, sorry, kids, I wanted the donkey. All right? That's a weird thing. All right? But that's how it worked. But the truth is here that it never, ever worked to take away the sins. And the freaky thing is it actually was a little bit counterproductive because not only did it not take the guilt away, but it actually reminded people of sins all the time. This, this is like the... I don't know if you've got a friend or you've had a friend where they just feel like it's their mission in life to remind you of the stuff that you do wrong all the time. Have you ever had one like that? It's really irritating, isn't it? You know, And you really want to bless them by finding a shallow grave for them somewhere. <laughs> all right? That's what you want to do. But this is almost like what it is. It's like... You're just getting reminded all the time that you've fallen short and it's not working. But that, that's, I mean, obviously there's a faith component that looks forward to Christ, but in itself, that's pretty frustrating. I'm losing my best animals, they're not doing the job, and I'm continually reminded that I fail. But check this out in uh, Hebrews 10, later on in Hebrews 10, verse 11 to 14. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Isn't that frustrating? What's his posture, like his physical posture? You see that? He's standing. You get that? The writer of Hebrews wants you to connect chapter 10 to chapter 1. He's standing. Why is he standing? Because the job's never done. And I actually didn't know this until just recently, but did you know in the temple, in the Old Testament temple, there were no seats? There weren't any seats because the job was never done. So doesn't this make what Christ did even more sensational? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, he sat down because it's done. It's just like your heart should be going, woohoo, how good's that, right? Now if you had to lose 55 perfect lambs or bulls out of your flock or herd, and then you came and you read this in Hebrews, man, that would be a time for celebration. Maybe you'd kill a lamb and have a party with it. Because <laughs> right? this is amazing. This is huge. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He got it done. And what I love about this last phrase in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10 is there's a mixture of tenses in this last phrase. Do you see that? For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, it's already been done, past tense, those who are being sanctified, present tense. 
It's actually the death of Jesus and his offering that makes your increase in holiness, which just means following God and being set apart for him, and your purity, it makes your increase in purity a certain thing. Sweet stuff. Number two, here's point number two. It's complete purification, it's better purification. The death of Christ is a better way to handle sin and guilt. I talked quite a bit last week about how people tend to try and manage their sin and their guilt. This is a way better way of doing it. This is Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, like imagine that, it's like I just had a bath. Like we're going to burn the heifer and then we're going to sprinkle you with its ashes. I read this section out of the early part of uh, Exodus the other day where Moses sacrificed an animal and then he flicked all of the blood of the animal all over the people. And some of us are going, well, that's really gross. Well, maybe sin's really gross. Maybe the blood's really important. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? See, isn't that where guilt comes in? Guilt sits and resides right in the conscience, doesn't it? And it tells me I'm not good enough. And what follows shortly after that is shame. But what does the offering of Christ, the blood of Christ do? It doesn't just purify the sin, but it actually purifies your conscience on the inside. This is amazing. So you don't have to do, I talked last week that one of the ways that the conscience works in our lives is when we work out that we're wrong and we shouldn't have done what we did, we tend, our, our knee-jerk response tends to be, let's just try harder. Let's just work harder and we'll put more effort in and we'll see if we can get there. And the writer of Hebrews says you don't get to a clean conscience by working harder. You don't get to it by dead works. You don't get to it by trying to be better and trying to be good. You get to it by the blood of Christ, the purifying blood of Christ. You see, the conscience needs to give way to a new way of seeing. This is called faith. The conscience looks inward for truth. Faith looks outward. The conscience looks inward, sees failure and wants to try harder. Faith looks outward and says, Christ has brought purification and is purifying my sins and helping me to live a holy life. One sees judgment, the other sees tender mercies. One sees us naked and alone before the judge and the other one sees Jesus. That's huge. That's amazing. Randall C. Zachman said this, Christ takes away all evil that our conscience tells us we have and gives us every good thing that our conscience tells us we lack. Isn't that sweet? That is some sweet, sweet truth. So whether it's right now for you or whether it's tomorrow, when you get right in the middle of a disgusting, filthy habit or sin, how precious is this? It's incredibly precious for you. You can stand in a place of cleanness and a clean, clear conscience through faith in Christ and trust in Christ. Number three, specific purification. Note this phrase. After making purification for sins, singular or plural? Plural. Now he could have said, after making purification for sin generally, Christ sat down, but he didn't say that. He actually said, after making purification for sin specific, he sat down. 
The blood of Christ and the death of Jesus on the cross is an opportunity for every single individual sin in your life to be forgiven. Jesus didn't die for you generally. He died for you specifically. And back on the cross just over 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for every single evil, sinful act that you will do in your whole lifetime. Think about that. There's some stuff you haven't done yet. There's some bad stuff that you haven't done with. That's dealt with. That's done. You get that? That's amazing. That means tomorrow... You see, the writer of Hebrews is all about wanting to encourage you. Don't give up. Don't give up. And he's saying tomorrow it's dealt with. How many have you got tomorrow? How big's your pile tomorrow? You don't even know yet. It might be 20, it might be 50, it might be 100, it might be 10,000. And the writer of Hebrews is saying he's already done that. Specifically dealt with, made atonement for it and purified it. John Piper says this, The purification that was made was made once for all. The interposition of the blood was 2,000 years ago, never repeated, finished for all your sins. For the sin that you'll commit on your dying day a year from now or 40, 50, 60 years from now. The purification of that sin happened 2,000 years ago. This is an awesome gospel. Amen? It is, isn't it? It's like, man, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do in 40 years' time. I'm going to be 80. All right? Maybe I don't wipe my nose with a handkerchief or something. And that's my, I don't know. Maybe that's not a sin, but you get what I'm saying? I don't know what I'm going to do. But Jesus is saying, and the writer of Hebrews is saying here, he's going, it's, it, it's, it's going to be okay because I've already dealt with it. I've already sorted it out. It's done. Here's where I'm going to finish. Man, we're going to finish early today. This is good. I've been getting a bad reputation lately. That's what it's all about, my reputation, just in case you're wondering. So I just wanted to do a little survey of purification in the Bible. That's what happens when you get a three-point sermon. You're over in under an hour. Anyway, here we go. Revelation 19, verse 6 to 8. Let me read this to you. It says there, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Listen to this verse 8. It says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Isn't that amazing? If you were here last week, you would have heard that really the Bible kind of goes to such extremes that it basically says that we're, at some level, we're covered in pussy, rotting, stinky sores. And in Revelation, it's going, no, you're actually covered in really bright, fresh, clean linen. Beautiful. It's going to be a beautiful marriage ceremony. Well, where did we get that from? We didn't get it from us, did we? Because we're messy. We're stinky. We're pus-covered, stinky, rotting people. Oh, we got it from Christ, didn't we? We got, it, we got it from Christ on the cross. We'll look at that a little bit more later on. Check this one out from Revelation 7, 13 to 14. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? It's almost like, who the heck are these guys? I saw those other guys who are really stinky and putrid. Where did these guys come from? Check this out. I said to him, Sir, you know, 
He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's like, it always spins me out that this whole thing about washing your robes in Christ's blood is the opposite of what we do with clothing here physically. I mean, you get blood on it, you just go, get it in, soak it as quick as you can because that's going to stain. But it just works, it's counterintuitive when it comes to the, the spiritual. You, you, you wash your stuff in, your dirty robes in Christ's blood and he brings purity to it. All right. We're going to finish by looking at a... Um, a little section of scripture out of Zechariah. I won't have a show of hands as to who's actually read Zechariah. But there's this fascinating couple of people. There's this fascinating uh, little story in Zechariah. Uh, and I'll read, we'll read some of that now. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3 actually talks about the devil. And just to put you in the picture, the devil was an angel that decided he didn't want to be an angel anymore. He wanted to be God. And uh, he thought a really cool thing to do was to see if he could take over. Problem is that there's only one God and no one's going to kick him out because if you kick him out, he's not God and he's never going to stop being God, right? So there was, it was a really dumb ploy, really stupid ploy. And God said, righto, you're out. I'm going to boot you out of heaven. And it looks like what the devil did is he went around and he uh, went, it was like some kind of council election, maybe he put signs around the place and tried to persuade as many of the angels to come with him as possible. And about a third of them went with him. All right? And we call those guys demons. Okay? But all they all are are just angels. A whole lot of them are just angels. And so then the devil come, comes into the Garden of Eden and he thinks, hey, it didn't work for me, so let's see if we can get the humans to do it as well. All right? So he comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve uh, to want to try and be God. And it doesn't work. And so we and the, uh, and the devil and his angels, we end up all on this same track. And what you actually find... and we might do some more teaching about this later, is that the, the devil's actually got a four-phase plan to deal with you. All right? The first phase is temptation, which is what we saw in the Garden of Eden, and it confronts us most of the time. Second phase is accusation. The third phase is condemnation. And the fourth phase is termination. All right? And we'll have a look at those as we go through. What we've got in Zechariah chapter 3 is uh, we've got Zechariah uh, being given a vision or a dream by God. And here's how the dream goes. Then God showed me Joshua, the high priest. All right, now you just, at this point in time, hear this. What we've got is we've got Israel in exile and they don't have a monarchy. So in terms of importance, the high priest is the top guy of all the priests and probably he's got a higher importance now than what he used to because there's no monarchy. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, which is Old Testament language for standing before the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. See, this is just what the devil does all the time. He just goes around accusing people. He's the finger pointer, all right? And he's just, he's that, that friend maybe that you've had who just keeps pointing out all the bad things in you all the time. Really irritating, really depressing, really frustrating. But that's what he does. In fact, the name Satan actually means adversary in Hebrew. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? You see, the right hand of someone was where the accuser would always stand. You actually see this in uh, Psalm 109, verse 6. It says, Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. 
So what you've actually got is you've got a legal kind of courtroom. The accuser's there at the right hand of Joshua and he's pointing the finger. He's saying, you're lousy. You see, the devil's always the accuser. That's what he does all the time. That's his main job. We see this in Revelation 12 verse 10. It says, uh, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So here's how it works. The devil comes along and he tempts you. And we're all pretty dumb a lot of the time and we just believe him. We think, that sounds good. Yeah, like really, that's going to be the best thing, to hand out a bit of revenge to the person that hurt me. I can see your point, all right? And so we go and we do that, all right? And then he pulls away because you kind of think that you're on, you don't really want to be on the devil's team, but somehow you end up thinking like you've got some kind of posse over here, right? But then he separates from you, all right? And then he stands to your right, not literally, but you know what I'm talking about, in the courtroom and he points his finger at you and he says, you are pathetic, look at what you've done. You did that. You took revenge. You looked at porn. You worship yourself. Look at that whole day. All you kept saying was stuff about yourself and marketing yourself to other people. Look at that comment that you actually made on Facebook. That was dodgy. Why'd you put that photo up? Why'd you look at that photo? Why'd you buy that stuff? But it's not just questions. It's accusation. You're lousy. You're not getting it right. And it's almost like what the devil does, like he's doing here with Joshua the high priest, is he's appealing to God, who's a righteous judge, that he should deal with this guy. Break your love and your allegiance with this guy or this girl. Break it. They don't deserve it. Look at what they've done. Don't come through on what you promised because they're filthy and they're really, really bad. The devil wants God to reject his people. That's what he wants him to do. All right? And he thinks he's got some stuff. He's got some weaponry, which is the sins and the... And the the gullibility and the stupidity and the evil of our own heart. He thinks he's got some ammo that's actually going to get the job done for him. But you know, when we read other parts of scripture, we know that that is never, ever going to work. Jeremiah 32, verse 40 to 41 says, I will make with my people an everlasting covenant, promise, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I'll put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me, I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. This is God's commitment to you. I'm not going to let him do it. But we've got a problem. Here's the problem. Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with what? Filthy garments. Now, now we've got a big problem, haven't we? <laughs> all right. You know why? Because the devil's right. That's the big problem. The devil's right. And so when the devil comes and kind of accuses you and accuses me, because he does that all the time, he's right. We're in trouble. I did a bit of research on this word filthy here. Let me tell you what the word filthy means in the, in the original language. This is what a commentator said. The Hebrew word for filthy is the strongest expression in the Hebrew language for filth of the most vile and loathsome character. Some interpreters maintain that Joshua was covered with excrement. Representing the pollution, the contamination, and the seriousness of the, 
of the sin of Joshua and by metaphor, the sin of the people. Another commentator I read said the root word for the word filth there is excrement and vomit. It's not just a little bit of dirt. It's not like I've got a sweet little white robe and I was going for a strap down the hill out there and I fell over and just got a bit of red dirt on there. This is like excrement and vomit on the road. So now we've got a bigger problem. Agreed? Much bigger problem. Because not only is the devil right, but here's Joshua, the high priest. He's standing in the presence of the perfect one, covered in vomit and poo. That's messy. That's not a good place to be standing. Do you get that? I mean, it'd be okay probably if God wasn't there and he was just standing there in that, in the presence of the devil. But he's not. He's standing there in front of the pure one. So you almost get the sense as you're reading through this story, you just, there's a little bit of suspense here and you're just going, this is going to get messy. This, I'm not sure how this is going to end. See, the devil's saying, look at that filthy, stinky dude. You know, I don't want to get too into it, but you know sometimes when you... <laughs> like it happens with kids, oh, you know when people kind of spew and then you go in there and you just get a really strong... Do you know what I'm saying? And you, just, you know, you're almost... You don't even have the bug, but you just go, I'm gone too. All right? It's really disgusting, but it's almost like in the presence there, there's almost that knee-jerk response that you just go, oh, man, that just must be disgusting. That must be repulsive. God has to turn his back on Joshua the high priest. How could you face him? How could you have him in your presence when you're pure? You've got to desert him. You've got to leave him alone. What does God do? The angel said to those who were standing before him, this is the angel of the Lord, God said, looks like he had some other angels there, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And look at this. This is Zechariah. He gets in on it, right? He's getting excited about it. He's going, how sweet is this? He's going, I'm not, I'm not just going to watch this vision. I'm going to get involved with it. So he's going, and I said, come on, put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Isn't this a sweet image? Covered in... Yuck. Repulsive yuck. And God deals with it. Takes the filthy garment. Gives new, fresh, clean ones. So to be my encouragement to you today, be purified by Jesus. Let me give you some details about how you can get that done. The writer of Hebrews wants you to understand and know what God's purification is like. He wants you to know that he purified you on his own. He was the only sacrifice that was ever going to get it done. And he's done it finally and decisively. You should listen to him. You should dedicate your whole life to him and you should sacrifice all that you have to him. There's no risk in the future of any kind of failure of your purification. It's done. It's finished. Number two, you need to understand imputation. We've talked about this a little bit at the project here. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you've got this transaction that goes on on the cross. By your faith and your trust in God, what happens is when Jesus dies, 
you get the opportunity for him to transfer all of his good credit onto you and you get the chance to transfer all of your bad credit onto him. That's what imputation is. Imputation is not just forgiveness of sin so that you come back to neutral. Imputation is forgiveness of sin, get you to neutral, addition of Christ's righteousness to get you to sweet smelling. You know, this is not like you've just gone from funky to no Dio. Alright? And you don't smell like anything. This is like really funky, really bad, vomit-inducing covering to the best aftershave that money can never buy. People are going, oh, who's that guy? Who's that girl? What's that perfume? That is some sweet-smelling aroma. Wouldn't you agree that that is a huge transition? It's not just about getting rid of the vomit and the excrement. It's about the addition of everything that would make you attractive and, and Aramaic, uh, Aramaic, aromatic. There you go. We can all become Hebrew, can't we? Do you see that? That is amazing. That's really amazing. And Galatians 2 tells us the only way that you can, you can get this, check this out, is both you and Christ have to die simultaneously. Not literally at the same time in history, but Christ's death needs to be appropriated in your life and you need to die at the same time to get it appropriated. And when those two things happen, then you get all of the credit of Christ. Jesus is not some kind of weird kind of Hindu deity that we just get to add on with our pantheon of gods. He wants to come in and he wants to dominate in the best possible way. And he wants to be Lord and he wants to be boss. Galatians 2.19-20 says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus dies because of all of the sin that I did that get put, gets put on him. And when I die with him in that death, everything that is his life and everything that is his righteousness gets rolled over onto me. And when you really work that through to the way that you live your life each day, it'll change you hugely. I've had the last couple of days, I've really been struggling with some sin in my own life. And some of the things I said at the start of this message are about me. Because I can't stop it. Like I realised last night, I just the, the motives and, and, the, and the proud motives in my heart have just been out of control for me. And you know, I've worked really hard to try and get them under control. But you know, I, I just, I honestly, I haven't been able to do it. Which is why I need to come to the Word, where the Word says, Son of God, you can't do it. I don't know why you're trying to just work harder. Maybe you need to get up earlier in the morning and read the Bible, or fast a little bit more, or pray a little bit more. You can't do it, Son of God. Just give it in. Die with Christ. Die with Christ and get a righteousness that you never earned. Don't be identified. And this is even this morning. I got up at 6 o'clock this morning and spent about 30, 40 minutes with God this morning in just preparation for today. And I just realised this morning, and I just thought, yeah, all of a sudden I've been, I'm massively identified by my, my struggle and my temptation over the last few days. That's who I am. See, that's not who Joshua the high priest is. He wasn't identified ultimately by his filthy robe, was he? And that's kind of one of the things that happens to us often is we just get in this, if you're anything like me, you get in this kind of battle with some stuff, and if it goes long enough, you start thinking, well, that's just me. I'm stuck in it. I'm, not, I'm never going to be out of this stuff. 
It's not you. Imputation says it's not you. And living in imputation with a good understanding of it takes you to a whole different place. You sin in specifics. Jesus purified you in specifics. You should confess your sin and repent in specifics. All right? So you don't go home at night time and just before you go to bed, you just go, oh, Jesus, I just ask you to forgive me for all my sins today. No, when Jesus shows you through the day via your conscience that you've done something wrong, you go to him and you get him to purify you. All of the purification happened two and a bit thousand years ago, but you know what? You need to appropriate it during the day. The word's very clear about this. Uh, 1 John 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins, sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He wants to, you to appropriate that throughout the day. Don't let it pile up. Don't repent. Don't turn. Don't confess in general. Repent, turn and confess in, in detail. Not because you should get down on yourself, but because Jesus paid for your sins in detail. All right? So when you get frustrated and angry with someone that you shouldn't get angry with, someone who you should have loved, just repent. Say, God, I didn't do what I should have done. I got angry at someone who was getting angry. I lost control because someone, my, my child was losing control. So I need you to purify me and to cleanse me from that. Appropriate it. This is good news. This is really good news. It's also the importance of biblical community. Who do you confess sins to? Who do you do it? See, James 5 verse 16 says this, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you'll be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I hope you've got people that you regularly confess sins to. Because that's where the healing comes from. It doesn't come from you sitting on it. It's just like, I think often in our autonomy as human beings, we just kind of sit and we just go, okay, well, I know what the Bible truth is, so I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to apply the Bible truth because I don't want to tell those people because then there's going to be this whole shame and they're going to look at me and they're going to think I'm a really bad person, which you are, all right, by the way. But they're going to think I'm a really bad person. And they are too, by the way. The, the weird thing is that we all love to run around with masks on our faces, making everyone else think we're not as bad as what we really are. When in reality, if all of us decided that we'd just kind of say, look, we're all a train wreck, all right? And hopefully a couple of you just going, oh, Sondergaard's got a problem with pride. Yes, he does. All right? And that won't be the last time you see it, for sure. All right? Hopefully some of you just go, okay, I give up. I put my hands up. I'm a wreck too. I need the purification of Jesus, I need my sins sorted out and I need someone to confess to and I need someone to pray for me on a regular basis so that God brings about healing in me in the areas where sin hurts me and infects me and the disease gets control of me. And that's why in the church here we think community groups are really critical for you to be a part of. You don't have to be part of our community groups but we think the Bible assumes that you're part of God's family and you're part of biblical community. So if you're not in a place where there's an opportunity for you on a regular basis to confess your sins, you need to get yourself to a place where you are in that position. Fair enough? Because that's going to be good for you. This is not like, oh, Pete's hitting us on the head with a stick again. right? No, he's not. It's like Pete's just trying to shove you in the direction that's going to be the sweetest place for you. 
That's what he's trying to do. Shove you in the direction where you get healed. And sometimes you can kind of respond to some of this stuff and you just kind of go, yeah, but my situation's not that bad. But that's only because sin's lied to you and it's deceived you and you're just in a place that you think is okay. No one in this world is in a place that is okay unless they're sitting right in the sweet spot with Jesus. And that doesn't come about just by doing it on your own. It comes about by confession and repentance with other people. It doesn't mean that we're going to get a line-up at the end here, you know, and Lauren can go first down the front here, right? Let's, you know, don't mess with this, Lauren. Let's get down to the messy stuff, all right? But it will mean that she's going to do that sometime with someone. And it will mean that you're going to do it sometime with someone and maybe more than one person. Because the Bible's saying when someone else prays for you and you've had a big problem, that can actually be really healing and you should expect that it is going to be really healing in your life. Here's a good question for you. Do you think God actually forgets your sins? This is one thing that I throw around quite often at the school here. Do you think God can actually forget your sins? And kids want to go, yeah, he can because he can do everything. Right? But here's your big problem. The Bible also says that he knows everything. So how does he forget something? I don't think he does. If you look at other scriptures in the Bible, where, where God says, I'll remember your sins no more, he does say that. There are other parts of the Bible that say that he's removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. You see, this is imputation again. If your sins have been put on top of Christ and his righteousness has been put on top of you, there's nothing in between you and him anymore. It's just not there. And this is what God means. When I'm removing your sins, I'm removing your sins as far as the east is from the west and putting them on my son. And never ever again will the thought of what you did wrong come in between you and I when I relate to you. That's a really simple biblical truth that's very, very difficult to put into action, isn't it? Especially when we've sinned, when we've done the wrong thing and we feel guilty. Because all we can see in between us and God is this great big hulk of sin. And we say, God, please forgive me for my sin. But you know, those are the glasses often that we, that we look through. And honestly, getting to the place where we know that Jesus bore all of that, took all of that, and there's clear 2020 vision between God and us, that's a sweet, sweet place to be in. And maybe some of you, let's be honest with it, maybe some of you, it's not that you're just not thinking right, it's that there actually is a big ball of vomit and excrement. That is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in one sense. Like, if there is a big ball of guilt and vomit and excrement there and Christ is offering to take that, like, why wouldn't you just give it to him? Why would you hang on to that? No, I like my vomit, thanks. You know, like, seriously. I've got a nice uh, bath gown and I've got some pockets, so I'm just going to fill those pockets up with vomit. All right, got some pockets on the back, we'll fill those up. Going to style my hair with it. All right, in the mirrors, it's kind of a bit flecky in there, but at least it, uh, when it dries out, it sticks in the right place. But that's ridiculous, isn't it? But like even for Christians sometimes we can just go, yeah, there's some stuff there, but I'm, I'm, never, I'm not actually going to bring that to God and lay that in front of him and just let him deal with it. 
let him forgive me and actually repent of it. I'm just happy for that to sit there. You know, and the thing is that we walk around in life and we walk, you know, wherever you work or whether you go to school or wherever you go, you walk around, everyone's going, oh, what the heck's that smell, you know, because there's something wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like you see people walking around and you go, man, there is just something wickedly wrong with that person, you know. No pun intended, right? There's something wickedly wrong and they just, they just look really down. And why do they? That is a really weird thing that they're doing there. You know why? It's because they've styled their hair with vomit and they're not actually bringing it to God to actually get it dealt with. And to have a God that just wants to take your vomit and your excrement and give you a beautiful robe and you don't take it? Really? Well, that's got to be the most illogical thing in the history of the universe that human beings, and we live in a world of them, don't take it. I've heard other people say this. I actually uh, used to use some teaching in my younger days that actually taught that you don't need to ask God for forgiveness. The Bible never says anywhere that you should ask God for forgiveness because he already has forgiven, forgiven you. So when you sin, you just say thank you. I don't like it, all right? Because I don't think that sounds very humble. I think humility is when I've stuffed up, when I've messed up, when I've made a hash of things, you're coming to God and you're just going, seriously, you, don't, you shouldn't have to forgive me right now. I don't see Joshua the high priest just going, hey, thank you, God, angel of the Lord, thanks. I see him just being absolutely stunned at his filthy garment that's been taken away. And for people who are stunned by the filthiness being taken away and know the depth of their filthiness, they're going to come to God and they're just going to go, God, I know the answer is yes, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. Doesn't it make it easy to ask when you know the answer is yes? You know, like seriously, if my kids offend me, I hope that they know on the inside of them that they're going to get forgiveness. That's one of the things in our house, in our house when you actually do the wrong thing, you offend someone else, just... Say sorry to them and ask them to forgive you. And we teach them, you need to forgive each other because the Bible's very clear that if you don't forgive, God's not going to forgive you. So forgive each other. So it's certain that people are going to forgive each other. That makes it easier. So go to God knowing that he'll say yes. Why would he say no? If he's provided purification for sins for all time, two and a bit thousand years ago, it's never going to be no. And it's not this depressive, oppressive thing where you're just kind of getting all guilty and all down about it, you know, and you're just kind of coming up, oh, I just don't know, I, just, I think he's going to hit me with a stick. Look, he's not going to hit you with a stick, all right? So get down to the details, take him to him, get it dealt with. This is one sweet message for a dirty world, all right? It's a sweet message for a dirty bunch of people in a church, isn't it? Is this a sweet message for us? It's a sweet message for a world that's dirty and they don't even know how dirty they are because we don't know how dirty we are a lot of the time. This is really inspiring. Like, I mean, it'd be weird if you just went out and started shouting Hebrews 1 verse 3 down Margaret Street, right? But you've got to work out some way to shout it, don't you? Because people need this. I mean, the worst case scenario is, is that we get to the end of all time and all the people that we know that didn't ever trust in Jesus stand before Jesus in filthy garments and he doesn't give them a clean one. 
but he burns in wrath toward them. Well, that's bad. Anyone with me on that? Like, you know, on that? No one wants that. <laughs> so we need to find a way, a missional way to tell people. Jesus' crucifixion demonstrated visibly the tragedy of sin. Jesus absorbed the offence of sin. Jesus swallowed the seriousness of sin. Jesus dominated the power of sin. Jesus broke the control of sin. Jesus exposed the deceitfulness of sin. Jesus purified the filthiness of sin. Now we can stop sinning. Now we have a way to deal with guilt and shame. We found the one that our soul can lean on. We're in a familiar place now, not a strange place. Jesus is putting reality back together. People are deserting their idols for Jesus. They're loving him, they're pursuing him, they're sacrificing for him, they're delighting in him, hoping in him, serving him, trusting him and obeying him. They're becoming more like him. We are far worse than we ever dare to think and loved far more than we ever imagined. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, it's been pretty uh, hardcore Bible theology stuff, stuff today. But God, I pray for a really sweet transition into the, the affections and into the practice of what we all do here. I pray that you'd teach us, sometimes second by second, minute by minute, how to live in your righteousness, how to confess and repent, not in a heavy, oppressive way, depressing way, where we just haven't been good enough for you, because we never had to be good enough for you. You never asked us to be good enough for you. You just promised to take our filthiness and make us clean. And so we thank you for doing that. We really appreciate you doing that. And thanks for telling us about it in the Bible. Amen.